Hi, my name is Chris Brennan. You're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Monday, January 29th, 2018, starting just after 3 p.m. Actually, it's 3.12 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 141st episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for February of 2018. Uh, hey, guys. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Hey. All right. So we are back. Last month, we did an entire yearly forecast, which was kind of a big thing to do. And this month, we're back to our, our usual monthly grind, which feels a little bit more approachable. It feels a little bit smaller, a little bit more cozy, but I think... I think better in in some ways because we don't have as much work to do. How do you guys feel about it? I think yeah. the vibe for February is very mellow all around. <laughs> I'm I'm ready for some less epic themes. Yeah, less epic, far ranging. Like we've been dealing talking about like Saturn and Capricorn and like Uranus moving into Taurus for the next seven years and all this other stuff. This month we're just going to talk about some some pretty light things. I think by comparison. Um, so in the, we're going to start by doing some news and announcements. Then we're going to do some sort of general discussion topics about things that I've touched on in the podcast so far this month in order to get you guys' take on it. And then after all of that, we will jump into the forecast for February and talk about also eventually the auspicious electional chart that we've picked out for the month of February. So for anybody that just wants to jump ahead to the forecast or different parts of this episode, you can look in the description for the episode, and I'll put some timestamps so that you can jump ahead. Otherwise, just enjoy the rest of the discussion. So um, first things first, what do you guys have coming up in terms of events or things in the next few weeks that you wanted to let people know about? Uh, Kelly, I know you just got back from Australia and doing a bunch of consultations, and you're getting back into the swing of things now that you're back home, right? Yeah, I am. I feel like December, January were these kind of island months. And what I've got coming up for February, I start my first online class for the year, which is a four-week deep dive on transits. So that starts the first week of February. And I've also got a very exciting new product, my Stellar Insights Monthly, which is like an exclusive access subscriber-only uh, program we're offering. So there'll be some really special content that I'm putting together for that, a lot of videos about the month ahead, different um, energies for February, that type of thing. So working pretty hard on those two things, prepping those two things right now. Awesome. I'm excited about that. So you're actually going to be doing like more deep dive sort of uh, forecast type episodes, but for uh, an exclusive sort of subscribe subscription audience, basically, right? Totally, totally. I mean, I always say I just, I just have so many ideas and so much to say. And uh, yeah, I just thought, why not create some really good content, use the video format, which I've been, I've been wanting to do more video for a long time. Mm. And um, my business partner, Tony, who gives me some really good advice, encouraged me to structure it in this way. So we're going to, it's a big, it's a massive experiment. We have no idea. We, we are getting people signing up uh, and we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll look forward to feedback from everyone. But yeah, so it'll be like a, a, a short video overviewing the month and then a deep um, dive sort of week by week. This is what's happening. This is how you can use the energy for the month ahead. And people will be able to access the content. You know, if you don't know a lot about astrology, I always think 
I think about my sisters, my three sisters who are very interested in astrology, but don't know a lot of the technical stuff. So you don't have to know the technical stuff. I'll be doing the hard work for you. And then if you do know your chart, there'll be some check your chart tips where you can, where I'll sort of say, this is how you connect it to your chart. This is how you find out where it, you know, specifically is for you. So I don't know, Austin, you might find this too, when you share astrology in a more broad sense that you sort of got two levels in your audience where you've got the more interested enthusiast, but then the more serious um, person who might have their chart. You may, I don't know if you've noticed that, I'd be curious to hear. Yeah, that's, um, th- that's a pretty key distinction. Um, you know, I, I think we probably both think about that when we're writing, like, will this be interesting for somebody who knows what a, a Mars Venus square is while at the same time uh, also be uh, comprehensible to someone who doesn't know what that technical doesn't know the technical part of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so people can find out more information about that on your website, which is kellysastrology.com, right? Yes, thank you. And yeah, the new program is called Stellar Insights Monthly, but it's right there on the homepage, so it should hit you in the face when you work it, walk into the proverbial front door. Okay, brilliant. And Austin, what do you have going on this month? Well, I'm finally going to get my 2018 class schedule out. Um, Hopefully before this podcast uh, airs, I've I've been a little over busy and delayed and a little finicky about getting it perfect. But um, that'll go out this week and first week of February and enrollment will be open for the entire year of classes. And there's going to be There'll be an eight-month basics class, and there'll be sort of um, intermediate timing techniques class. And then there's going to be a bunch of uh, going to be several uh, astrological magic classes, and then a bunch of mm, little talks and seminars on um, more not random uh, <laughs> uh, topics, but you know, not not like long twelve-session class topics. So I'm sprinkling those around. So that'll that'll finally be out this week, and. I'm always uh, I'm always writing. Um, you know, I've been doing my my decanlies rather than my weeklies, and I've been doing my dailies uh, for quite some time now. And uh, people like those; they can support me on Patreon and get a bunch of bonus free stuff or extra stuff. Awesome! And people can check out more information about that on your website, which is austincopic.com, right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. All right. And as for myself, uh, as for myself, I've been working on this poster thing for the past month, which has kind of been a little bit crazy, a little bit hectic, and has gone a little bit awry. Uh, so first things first, there's been some shipping delays with the posters because apparently uh, I bought poster tubes, like round, you know, cylinders, and to ship the posters in. And evidently, uh, the U.S. Postal Ser- Service has problems. Yeah, Kelly, you've got one. Yeah. Like yeah. demonstrate. You can imagine this rolls off the roller, literally. So apparently I'm having a hard time getting like a- answers from USPS, but a-, a nice guy at a UPS store told me that part of the issue is that these systems are fully automated now and round tubes will roll off of conveyor belts or sometimes won't be scanned properly because uh, they don't have a flat surface. So that's why a lot of places are shipping to using like triangular tube boxes. So I didn't know that when I shipped like the first, you know, 100, 200 orders of posters, which are traveling in different parts of the world right now, and some of them are getting stuck. So if your poster hasn't showed up yet, which has happened to like a few people, not a a lot, but a decent number, 
send me an email and I'll check the tracking and see if I can get you a replacement sent if necessary. Otherwise, it may just show up randomly in the next few days, which is what most of them are doing at this point. Uh, I've since uh, switched to Amazon.com in order to fulfill all of the orders, which was actually my original plan was just to sell them through Amazon and then let Amazon deal with shipping. But what happened is the page on Amazon, due to a glitch, I couldn't get it set up in time and just decided to ship them myself uh, in early January. So now that that's out of the way, Amazon's dealing with it. So if you go to Amazon and just do a search for 2018 Astrology Calendar Poster Bundle, you'll find the posters there for 1995. And on Amazon, of course, you can get free two-day shipping if you have a Prime account, which is pretty sweet. So uh, there's also more information about the posters at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2018 posters. So thanks to everybody who's bought one. If you you know, support the podcast, you listen, but you're not necessarily a patron and you're, you want to support us, one good way is just buy a poster and it'll be a good way to sort of show your support and get a cool sort of useful product that you can use throughout the course of the year to improve your astrological studies in the process. So that's it for my plug on that. And I think we can move into our, our general discussion at this point. So there were a few topics that I've dealt with, a few actually interesting and important ones that I've dealt with over the past few weeks since I talked to you guys last. Uh, there's one that I want to talk to you about, which was my the episode I just released today, which was on Young. But I just actually remembered the other episode I was curious to get your opinions on that I did, which was the topic, Is Astrology Becoming More Popular? And I was actually curious what you guys thought about that question, or if that's a question that either of you had ever considered or have like an inkling on one way or another. Yeah, it appears to be more popular. I mean, so you think it, it, it it's certainly more, looks like that, yes. That it's becoming more popular in society in general? Yeah, or maybe, I don't know, maybe some people are just realizing how popular it always is. You know, the when you look at statistics on, you know, people who read horoscope or, you know, how many people read horoscope columns, um, even at times where, you know, astrology was is or was largely shunned, you know, you have this giant percentage of the population of the United States who does read horoscope columns. It's, um, you know, there's a little bit of a like dirty secret indulgence quality about astrology for a lot of people. They think they shouldn't be paying attention to it. Like they're like, oh, I know it's not real, but I really like reading this thing. Um, and so I don't know. I guess one question I would have is how – how much is the art of astrology actually more or less popular versus how willing are people to talk about it and admit it? That would be maybe another question I would throw in there. I don't, I don't have the answer. I just, you know, mm. right. one of the directions well, my mind goes. Yeah, I mean, because that's important because there has been – this is success of like science education since the 1960s and 70s, I feel – for a lot of people that have like a basic high school education or even college education, uh, would almost I don't can't think of a better term, but almost like inoculate you against taking astrology seriously on some level, just in the presumption that it's not, or that scientists have looked into it and it's false, or because of you know dumb things like the zodiac controversy, which is supposedly disproven astrology or other things like that. And and I often wonder if that's not part of the thing underlying the tendency you pointed out to where sometimes people have this reticence towards saying yeah you know I'll read it but you know maybe not taking it too seriously or or having almost like a 
I don't know, like a reluctance or some sort of feeling underlying that of resistance, despite it otherwise making sense. Yeah, not wanting to talk to a friend of theirs about, you know, they read this thing, they, you know, they read this astrology thing and, you know, it was like kind of really true and was meaningful and actually changed the way they, you know, interacted with reality that week. If, you know, if your friend's just going to make fun of you for that, you're just not going to talk about it. And how many, you know, uh, again, when you look at the statistics of how many people engage with astrology in some way, you know, read, uh, consume it for lack of a better term versus how mm. many would talk about it publicly and say, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something there. Sure. What do you think, Kelly? I mean, you just got back from Australia where you were pretty busy, right? I was. Um, it's Yeah. Uh, gosh, I could say so many things. I, I do think it's getting more popular and I guess it, it's hard though. I know I'm very mindful. I think like Austin is of, you know, we're in it, you know, so for us, our lens and our filter is we see it all the time, you know, probably like you guys are like me where, you know, Facebook channels, there's just, you've got your regular real life friends, but there's so much astrology there because we have so many connections in this world. Right. That's a really important point. And that enthusiasts of any one thing always have a tendency to like see their thing as being really popular or something. And I, that's the, that tendency actually is the one thing that makes me sometimes question when all the astrologers like answer, because I put out two polls on this and like 80, 85% yeah. of the astrologers were just like, yeah, of course it's getting more popular. And yeah. it makes me like slightly nervous about that because I don't know if that's like a almost a like confirmation bias or something to a certain extent. Yeah, that's what I wonder about too. Mm. And then, but then I do think about how things like YouTube and even Facebook and the explosion of good quality astrology on the internet, like don't get me wrong, there's definitely some crap out there. But there is also a plethora of high quality stuff available, either free or very cheaply. And I do think that helps. And I think about my siblings. Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this with our listeners, but I'm the oldest of six. So in my family, we have this big age range. And then by the time you throw in everyone's partners, you get this 15 year sort of demographic. And I guess I'm always struck by not just my sister's interests, but when my brothers have partners or what have you, I mean, one of them's in a serious relationship, one of them's more sort of a single dating kind of guy. And, you know, they all, everybody wants to know about astrology, but I think part of the reason that it's becoming so popular or my take is that it is becoming more popular is that people are increasingly interested in themselves and astrology is a wonderful tool to kind of try and figure your stuff out not just where your golden talents and how you can, you know, hit the highs are, but to get a really honest appraisal of who you are, where your life can be in flow and where there might be some blockages. So uh, yeah, being mindful of the bias, but I do th even Chani Nichols, um, you know, to sort of quote or name drop her, think about the success she's having in the mainstream media as well. And whenever you see an astrologer that you know is really of substance that seems to be breaking through um, where they're treating her with a level of respect, uh, I think that's always a good clue that the work we're doing uh, is reaching people and maybe there's enough of us doing it to a high enough standard that we get, we're generating more respect for this craft that is often misunderstood. Sure. Yeah. And that was when I talked to uh, Dana Nichols and Jessica Lanyadu about this earlier this month, that was part of the conclusion we came to is it's growing partially because it's starting to now there's representatives of it uh, that are making it sort of more d diverse in some ways than it used to be. And, and it's reaching audiences that perhaps it didn't necessarily reach before. And that's part of the 
growth that's pretty tangible that you definitely can see within the community, I feel like over the past decade or two? Absolutely. And I think even just the the fact that people like ourselves are making a really, I don't want to say we're making an excessively good living, but we're able to support ourselves. We're able to contribute to our families, to our partners' lives through making our living with astrology. And I think that means there are more people wanting to pay for the quality, not just that we provide, but that our peers provide. And it just feels like there's more and more of that, which to me, I can only interpret as there's more and more people wanting that. Sure. Let me add a few things. Um, One, I'm really glad that you spoke to the the astrological content that's available for free on the internet these days, Mm. Kelly. Because, you know, it kind of used to be that there were newspaper horoscope columns, which were often written by people who weren't astrologers. Yes. Um, And that's still sometimes true, but much less true. Um, but, you know, I, I started uh, blogging, doing, you know, astrology blogging in 2005, and there wasn't a lot then. And so since then, that was 12 years ago, there's a lot of really good content. There's a lot of, there are a lot of really good astrologers writing in a variety of ways at a variety of levels. And so, you know, it used to be that if you wanted, you know, quote unquote, real astrology, um, you know, you would pick up the mountain astrologer once a month. And that's still a good thing to do, you know, props to the mountain astrologer. Um, but it's not, um, you know, it's not one of the only places to get it now. And I think that right. there's there's this sort of uh, middle ground uh, in astrology, um, sort of between the, you know, between what we do at conferences and how professionals talk to each other and a and a and a daily horoscope that you know for I, I think that my writing often occupies that middle ground. I think this podcast, um, in many cases, occupies this ground where it's not simplified down to the point where it's intellectually interested, uninteresting, or repugnant. But you don't already have to be an expert to be engaged. Mm-hmm. And I also I also think remembering back from when uh, I. W- thought astrology was dumb. Um, simply, when when you get into that middle layer, you realize that even if you think that, um, you know, if you come into it with the idea that uh, the, the central hypothesis or thesis of astrology is inaccurate, you do get the sense very quickly that these aren't a bunch of dumb people who are doing astrology. Um, you know, astrologers, <laughs> there's some, there's some dumb ones just like there are for anything, but in general, um, you know, astrology requires both, uh, you know, a very well-trained left and right brain to use that metaphor, uh, whether it's biologically accurate or not, you know, you need to be symbolic, imaginative, but also very precise and linear and able to do some math very quickly in your head, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and and so you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of dummies. Just, you know, if someone listens, for example, to this podcast, they might think that we're wrong. Um, But, um, you know, the problem isn't, uh, you know, a sub 80 IQ. Mm -mm. And I think that 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 surprises people and lets them know that, oh, this isn't, you know, this is something that smart people think about. And just the smallest amount of historical research will also show you that Smart people have been interested in thinking about astrology for a long time. Sure. And and it seems like that bar, that difference between that like middle ground astrology and what the basic inter intro level pop level astrology is, is like getting smaller because 
more advanced astrological concepts are starting to penetrate the mainstream, like the concept mm-hmm. of Mercury retrograde or the Saturn return, you know, things like that. And while in some ways it's almost the popularization of those concepts can be problematic because sometimes it becomes obnoxious, like with the Mercury retrograde thing can sometimes get overblown or overplayed. It still seems to be indicative of more, you know, advanced forms of astrology becoming slightly more popular in modern culture in some ways. And that has to indicate some level of popularization, you would think. Yeah, uh, that's a great point too. So two things. One, um, I see a lot of what was, uh, I see a lot of technical distinctions that were, you know, buried in an 800 year old book 20 years ago being trotted out and utilized in, you know, very, you know, uh, very horoscopy sun sign stuff. You know, a lot of some of the traditional revival, um, is filtering in, has, has filtered into a lot of astrologers' practice. And some of those technical distinctions, I think, are literally just making astrologers better. And then my second point is, uh, and this is sort of ooh, complementary in relationship to a point you made earlier, Kelly, about astrology being useful for people who want to explore themselves. Um, I also think that people are interested in, um, doing a little work remodeling their um, their idea of what reality is and how it works. Um, I, I don't think that um, a lot of the explanations and models that people have, people grew up with or were taught in school um, seem very satisfactory at this point in time. There are a lot of the holes in those models are, you know, there's a, a loud shrieking wind blowing through them. And I think more people are interested in what might be real that they were told was not real. Yeah, that's a really beautiful point, Austin. The the I but and I've always thought it's astrology fills part of that gap where people are looking for some contextual or philosophical framework. And I think you make a really good point around how you may disagree with astrological ideas or concepts, but if you talk to a, you know, an astrologer, you, you're more likely to find a well-educated, well-read individual than you are to find someone that you might be easily able to dismiss out of hand. Yeah, I remember the uh, a conversation I had 10 years ago where somebody, I don't know, I was like meeting someone, I was meeting a friend of a friend, we were sitting around eating some food, they're like, oh, you're an astrologer, but you seem like a rational person. Yeah. It's like that that's not a contradiction. <laughs> it's astrology would be very difficult to do without uh the faculty of reason. Correct. Yeah, that seems to be the biggest response when I'm meeting people or they're like, Oh, what do you do? And it's like, Oh, I'm an astrologer, and they sort of give you this look that's sort of like, but you seem normal. Right. Uh and it's like, Well, yeah, but, I am. But, but you don't seem mentally ill. You must yeah. be extremely high functioning. <laughs> See, and and to me that's the outer reality of what has to be the majority of the population though would still view astrology as not a legitimate phenomenon that's done by crazy mm. people or pretenders or or what have you and i guess that's the broader reality i i want to be careful about because in the episode we were very positive that we did earlier this month we were very positive in looking at the bright side but i always want to keep in mm. touch to some extent with that other broader reality of where society is at today where astrology is not broadly accepted as a legitimate, you know, viewpoint or point of view or cosmology or whatever you want to call it. 
Okay, um, I, I, I want to take that point and go even bigger in frame because our world is the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. And that if we're talking about like the world and actually, you know, the human world, um, you know, I, I think that uh, studies would show – I haven't done these studies, but um, I – I'm rather certain that the English speaking world is probably the most skeptical towards astrology. And maybe, you know, then I would probably include Western Europe uh, in that, generally speaking. But, you know, um, there's like billions and billions of other people. Um, You know, there's all of the Asian continent and Mm. the subcontinent. And um, I find that people who are not from Western Europe uh, or an English speaking country, don't give uh don't generally i can't depend on them to be like oh but astrology is for stupid people like that's um not uh, an impression i get uh, nearly as often i think that some of that that materialism and skepticism is um mm, can be located uh, uh in the anglosphere i don't think it's evenly distributed throughout the world and i'd love to hear from listeners uh, as to what they think if they're living in other places sure and one of the you brought up numbers and that was actually one of the criticisms i got of the previous episode which is that we didn't cite specific studies or like how many practicing astrologers there are how many websites and things like that and that really I didn't make that the focal point of the discussion because there's really not good statistics for most of those things. Like we don't know how many practicing astrologers there are in the world. Uh, the number of astrology websites is not really representative of necessarily hardly anything, and it's a little bit hard to check and watch the growth of that relative to the growth of the internet in general. With so many people getting online for the first time in the past decade, or with the decline of astrology books and the publishing and in, in, uh, industry in general versus more things moving online and, and all these other things. So it's very hard to actually get statistics for astrology. Um, yeah, it, it would be nice, but those um, all those factors you discussed do make it really difficult. And I don't know that number of websites would be a good indicator. Yeah, it's it's not, and because it, the it, you know the quality of those websites varies widely like who's doing them why are they doing them is it legitimate astrology or is it fake like there's all these variables that make a lot of those statistics if you're trying to analyze them completely pointless and so that's why i prefer to just talk with astrologers to get what their subjective sort of viewpoint is and like what they've considered in terms of things they've seen where it seems to be growing or becoming more popular in their subjective experience versus areas where there's still resistance or opposition or areas even of decline. And that brings up the last point I want to mention about one area that, that you might be able to speak to, Austin, which is just it seems like while I, I feel like I've seen a decline in the publishing of astrology books, I almost feel like I've seen more magic books being uh, published over the course of the past decade than I thought there were before. And I was wondering if there wasn't a bit of a growth or in that area in terms of the popularization of magical or or occult or other types of studies especially amongst the more recent like millennial generation yeah it certainly seems like that um i mean there were uh there were a lot of mass market um llewellyn mm. um you know um be a teenage witch books in the 90s so right. I, I don't necessarily know that there there are more occult books um being being published now um one thing i can say is that um 
magic and astrology have run very parallel over the last 20 years in the sense that there's been a translate there have been translation movements and uh, uh wanting to look back 500 years or 2000 years before um you know before a lot of the sources there was just like with uh, with astrology let's say in 1989 people would look back and were basically using ni- late 19th century models of magic or you know theos- theosophically influenced late 19th century models of astrology and a similar thing happened in both subjects where people are like, well, yeah, but what were their sources? And suddenly you're back in the Renaissance and they're like, and you're like, oh, what were their sources? And then you're back another 500 years. And then before you know it, you're in Alexandria. Um, and so that, that's been happening. And um, um, the magics have been getting better, just like astrology has been getting better by reintegrating some of that old, good, juicy material. Sure. And, you know, they're not necessarily one and the same because most astrologers, I would say, you know, don't have any background or or training in magic or anything like that. And there's not, even though there's linkages historically or or even currently between the two, they're not necessarily fields that exactly overlap, even though they can. But, you know, like, like Kelly and myself, I don't think, Kelly, you have much background in that field, right? Not a lot, no, just a very dabble. Yeah, so it's like I'm a working astrologer with only a tiny little bit of experience with the magical side of things, which right. would be different I, from Austin and yeah. Yeah, and I think that's important because the general public might not know that. They might just like mm. lump it into one general category of whatever, you know, wacky occult stuff that some people do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see that as another field where there may be some popularization at the same time. Yeah, they're they're definitely, especially the last maybe two years. I can really see there's sort of been an, a reinvigoration of the uh, what people call the the chaos magic movement, which was sort of like the late '70s punk rock of magic, um, where it's sort of mm, punk rock, but reading two thousand year old texts has been the more recent version, and um, I, I would say like astrology, um, the cracks in the dominant paradigm or worldview are um, enticing people to look through them and see what's on the other side. And astrology is one of those things and magic is another. There are, of course, others. And of course, that's not a wholly good thing when people – when people realize that the worldview they have, um, that you know, that's the the world, the dominant worldview that they grew up in, isn't working, that creates a variety of crises and problems, and can uh, end up, uh, and people can end up exploring things, um, ideas that aren't useful, right? That that weren't part of the the reality model for a very good reason, right? <laughs> Where everything becomes conspiracy theory. Um, Right. And so I and this is I don't know, I feel like this is part of the Neptune and Pisces melting reality slowly over its fourteen years. We're coming up on the halfway point, and I think things are getting good and melty and people's worldviews are getting more plastic, which is um both good and bad. I don't mean plastic in the sense of fake, but is in terms of malleable. Sure. Yeah, and even not that we're necessarily looking to time this potential, you know, popularity, increase in popularity in astrology, but I did wonder about the Neptune in Pisces piece and that just general openness around spiritual, metaphysical, mystical things in general. To speak to what you're saying there, Austin, that idea of people appearing through the cracks 
to see what's on the other side. There's a lot of options on the other side, but I think that need to peer through or that calling or drawing to do that, it it sort of feels like it's part of this Neptune in Pisces thing where the questioning of what you were told as a child, is that real? What were you told was fake? And maybe that's real. So yeah, the questioning and the, the, just the searching, the questioning. Yeah. And even if you look at, you know, mainstream um, uh, physical science, if you look at what physicists are talking about right now, they're very out there ideas. You know, it's um, a lot of stuff that makes the uh, <laughs> the the somewhat mind boggling um, uh, ideas that we got from exploring quantum mechanics seem seem almost quaint. You know, people announcing that according to our calculations, the universe shouldn't exist, and you know, <laughs> it's it's all um, you know, it's all very challenging to. Uh, you know, a sort of half-educated materialism. Well, everything's made of gears. I know that. There's definitely no such thing as a conscious being, says the conscious being. You know, we have biologists, respected biologists, doing uh, experiments and finding out that plants appear to have thoughts and intentions and react to their environment as beings like that. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty out there. That's very challenging. Sure. So speaking as an out there and and stuff, that's a transition. It's not a very good transition, honestly. I'm just trying to move us to the next Let's topic. Work, which work is, this segue, Chris. Right. Thank you. Uh, it takes a lot of practice to to do segues that good. Um, so the other topic that I just did was an episode I released today, actually. So you guys probably haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, uh, which was an episode on Carl Jung and his thoughts and views on astrology based on a new book that just came out a few months ago titled Young on Astrology, um, but also his influence on the astrological tradition. Um, this is something I was really interested in because I was really into Young's work and his theory of synchronicity, and I wrote a term paper on it back in Kepler around 2005, right at the same time as I was getting mm. into Hellenistic astrology. So uh, I would have probably continued on that route of focusing on Jung and being really interested in his thought and his work if I hadn't gotten deeply sucked into Hellenistic astrology and went off to live at Project Hindsight at that time to study ancient texts and work on my book for the next 12 years. So now that I, having just published the book last year, it was interesting coming back and reading this book, uh, Jung on Astrology, because it sort of just outlines his thought and shows how deeply how this was really a, a, a subject that he studied pretty intensely for the larger part of his adult life and how he incorporated it into his thought and into his practice as a psychologist. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention it to you guys. I mean, have you spent any time either studying Jung's work or I guess other most people's introduction to Jung is usually through intermediaries like Liz Green or Dane Rudyard or people like that? Uh, Kelly, I mean, have you been influenced at all by his work or, or what are your thoughts on oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my background in counseling and therapy sort of blends that a little bit too. But yeah, I mean, Jung's understanding of archetypes and the elements, it, you know, whether we like it or not, whether people agree with it or not, a huge amount of elemental archetype information that is in astrology today is fully informed by Jung's ideas on those types, if you like, the watery type, the fiery type. And you're right, Chris, whether people get it through Liz Green's work or whether they've got it directly from reading and exploring Jung, 
it's it's a huge component. And I think what you you the point you make is really interesting, which a lot of people don't realize, is that Jung deeply looked into astrology. And in fact, part of the rift with him and Freud, because they were very close for a very long time, part of the rift that pulled them apart was Jung's interest in things like astrology and the dreamscape that, you know, the dream world. And, and Freud just couldn't make that leap. You know, he didn't want to go into that more imaginal realm, which Jung was so passionate about. Right. You can really see that actually in some of the excerpts they have in this book from some of the letters between Jung and Freud, where Jung is like, you know, this guy that's 20 years younger than Freud. And he's trying to like convince him that this astrology thing is really interesting. And like, you should look into it for this, this, and this reason. I think you'll find it useful. And I'm sure Freud was just like, you know, thinking his protege had just like gone off and gotten lost in this weird realm. Yeah. Freud's like, it's all about the parents, mate. Forget yeah, like, exactly. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. Um, so yeah, the letters between Freud and Jung are really interesting and they do reveal Jung's passion for astrology. And then I believe there's a study that Jung did in the 40s or 50s looking at sinistry connections between married couples to try and find out astrological indicators of couples that would stay together for a long time. And some of those links, like, you know, sun moon aspects, for instance, or sun moon ascendant aspects are kind of commonly accepted today as really positive indicators of astrological sinistry, but it came out of a small research project that Jung did. Um, so right, that, that really was actually something we didn't get a chance to mention in that episode because his conclusion from that was actually really weird because he concluded that like his own expectations were influencing the outcome of the test, and so he ended up just deciding astrology was divination or that there was too much um input that the observer could have in terms of their expectations so that it wasn't actually working out as a statistical test in terms of his conclusions to that yeah that it wasn't as objective as he'd hoped he was feeling that he was having an influence or his bias was coming through right right yeah and yeah. and Austin you said that before the show we were talking you said that you you thought it was weird that I had just released that episode today because you had recently also uh, synchronistically just started picking up young and looking into him again or something, right? Yeah. Well, um, I guess people don't know this, but, um, uh, psychonaut like depth psychology was very much my first love. Um, my parents met in graduate school for humanistic psychology. And so the bookshelf growing up, um, <gasps> was like full of, you know, Jung and Freud and especially uh, Fritz Perls in Gestalt uh, Psychoanalysis. So, yeah. you know, when I was 19, I was um, drenched in, you know, the the Gestalt uh, re, uh, sort of reformation of Freudian psychology and I was reading Jung and all of that. And, you know, then I discovered some other things um, and kind of went away from that. But recently, I've been kind of wanting to come back to some of those depth psychology models, especially, uh, especially that of of Jung, because Jung seems to be having a moment ever since the uh, the release of the Red Book um, a few yes. years ago. Um, people are rediscovering Jung, um, and sort of, and and it's a, it's almost it's the undiscovered Jung. It's not the Jung that very carefully with his Saturn, the first house in Aquarius, formulated his ideas in such a way that they could be heard um, by his professional peers. This was like Jung writing, allowing himself to get crazy privately. Um, and so it's In the been, red book, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a like, 
oh, this is, you know, this is what was, this was what was going on inside the person who said those things. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, just the other day I was, uh, I picked up, uh, I had Eon on my bookshelf, which is his essays on the phenomenology of the self. And I, I decided I would, that, that would be my companion for bath time. And um, I was very interested in his uh, idea of, of the self with a capital S. He was talking about how just as there are unknowns that we encounter in the external world and that we have to adapt to or change us, like we have new experience. Uh, he said that you know there are also experiences we have uh, internally where we encounter a piece of ourself or a figure or a vision or a set of feelings um, that were part of us but not yet part of our conscious personality and that there is just as much undiscovered that could change us on the inside, which of course presupposes a, a, a much deeper and larger landscape of self. Um, and I thought that was just so interesting and fits so well um, with what you see astrology modeling in practice. People, you know, it, sometimes it takes a long time for a person to discover their chart. They may not recognize their Mars at age, you know, 14, but you talk to the same person at 38 and they're like, oh, yeah, I know that part of me. I, you know, integrated that when I was 25 or whatever. But anyway, the 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 funny synchronous part of it was that. Next day, I woke up and I was like, okay, I'm going to finish my uh, my essay, uh, my column on the first decan of Aquarius, and you know, which is a, which is a place that's about discovering and encountering the unknown. And then I was like, oh, that's exactly what I read in Jung last night. And then I looked it up, and of course, Jung has the first decan of Aquarius rising, and I was like, all right, great. <laughs> so yeah, there have been, there've been Jung things uh, happening lately. And and speaking of, he has like this amazing chart from a Hellenistic standpoint, and I didn't know this until last week when I, I pulled up his chart for the first time. It's a beast. And this is a great – actually, since we can share the video for the people watching this on YouTube, I'll actually go ahead and share the chart right now, and I'll try and describe to describe it for those who are just listening to the audio version. So this is purely just from a Hellenistic standpoint. Um, so he has – uh, assuming it's correct, which I think the time is actually really good, but he uh, has- there's a tiny debate about it. It's basically is it is the sun? It's about like a five degree debate at max, and so almost everything is sure except whether the sun is above or below the horizon. Okay, well, I'm going to take this is the version I believe based on at the end of this book, Young in Astrology, which I should mention actually. I'm going to do. A giveaway. Our giveaway this month is I'm giving away two copies of this book, uh, Young on Astrology, uh, which is edited by Saffron Rossi and Kieran Legrice, uh, to patrons who are on the giveaway tier, uh, who are our listeners. So I'll announce the winners of that on Wednesday, I believe. But I just wanted to mention that that's the giveaway this month. At the end, they actually have an interpretation of his chart, which is by his daughter. So his daughter actually, Young's daughter actually grew up to be an analyst, but also an astrologer, just like her father. And she used uh, a time that's pretty similar to this or, or pretty close. Okay, right. Within five minutes, five or six minutes, I guess. So she put 732. So um, yeah, so he has about, let's say, two degrees of Aquarius rising. He has Saturn ruling the ascendant as the traditional ruler. And interestingly, in um one of the one of the excerpts in this book he actually re refers to saturn as the ruler of his ascendant which i thought was interesting 
as an early to mid 20th century astrologer that he was actually still using the traditional ruler of Aquarius, um, which was Saturn. So he has a, he has Aquarius rising, Saturn in Aquarius in the first house. Um, it's probably a day chart, even if the sun just set recently. In a lot of charts that I've been working with over the past few years, I tend to see them as still behaving like day charts, even if the sun is just barely de- below the descendant. You know, Chris, um, yeah. this is we don't have time for this now, but I actually did a zodiacal releasing for Jung. Right. And um, I, I've got the case for the day chart versus the night chart based on the releasing that I think you would enjoy. I mean, I, I ran the day chart and I saw that he was in like a 20-year peak period for the last like 20 years or something of his life. And I thought that was pretty convincing. Did you find something else interesting with the night chart or which, where did you come down? Um, yeah, there's a good case for both. I'm not prepared to make all of it right now, but they're both very interesting. Um, and you can, um, yeah, well, there's not enough time to get into it. I'm not fresh with the data right now, okay. but, uh, they're both very, they both work extremely well. Maybe we could do that. I'm going to do an episode on young on the casual astrology podcast here. I think in the next few days for patrons who listen to that. So maybe we could review that sort of privately there. Mm, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so Aquarius rising, Saturn ruling the ascendant. It's in its own sign. It's in its own domicile of Aquarius. It's in the first house. It's probably a day chart, uh, potentially, arguably, which would make it of the sect in favor. So this is basically pretty much as well placed of a Saturn as you could come up with. Um, it's actually kind of reminiscent of the Saturn of Marsilio Ficino, mm-hmm. uh, who I, I believe had a similar. Was it was it like Aquarius rising with Saturn in Aquarius? Is that? I think so. Yeah. That, ring, that rings a bell. So that Saturn is actually being uh, bonafide by Jupiter, which is up in Libra in the ninth whole sign house, potentially in a day chart where it has a superior uh, both sign-based and degree-based trine over Saturn, which is actually applying and will eventually complete in an exact aspect. So Jupiter is in Libra in the ninth whole sign house, and it's overcoming and bonifying Saturn, the ruler of the Ascendant. It's also uh, perfectly conjunct speaker. Uh-huh. Oh, Jupiter is. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it's in his ninth house, which is just so interesting because that was the other dimension that he really brought to psychology that set him apart and, and obviously partially caused the rift with Freud. But it's the thing that really separated his psychology is is integrating this sort of spiritual or, or sort of quasi-religious component. And so it's interesting to see his ninth house being so prominent partially as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a great chart. I think I did like an hour of class uh, on this chart. We had such a good time pulling it apart. It's, sure, uh, it's one of those where everything works. Right, right. So he's got uh, the sun in its own domicile uh, in Leo in the seventh whole sign house conjunct Uranus uh, in squaring Neptune. Neptune is a squ- squaring the ascendant descendant axis. The moon is uh, exalted in Taurus in the fourth whole sign house, and it's actually interestingly in a mutual reception with Venus, which is in Cancer at 17 degrees of Cancer in the sixth house. Um, that Venus and Mercury otherwise would be the two planets that are a little bit, little bit more problematically placed in his chart in the sixth, but they're actually uh, being improved by that configuration with the moon, where the moon is angular and it's aspecting both of them with reception within three degrees. So the moon's actually helping both of them out. Uh, Venus Venus and Mercury are both overcoming Jupiter through a superior sign-based square. 
that Mars, potentially in a day chart, is the most problematic planet in his chart. And it's interesting that it's placed there in the ninth house of friendship, given his famous split with Freud, but that Mars is otherwise really well-placed. And even its condition as the more difficult planet in the chart, according to sect, is being mitigated through the sextile with Jupiter, with reception, which is offsetting and helping to ameliorate Mars's condition significantly. Um, yeah, so there's just a lot of really great, at least from a traditional or Hellenistic standpoint, this chart has almost like everything going for it, and even the parts that are difficult seem to have some major like mitigating factors going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So anyway, it's a very functional um, chart. Well, sure. and that that reminds me. Um, the the talk about Mars in Sagittarius reminds me. Of, oh yeah, of this Segway. February. Um, <laughs> Very um, smooth, Austin. Thank you. Shall we? Is that is that our segue? Is it time to jump into it, or do you want to? I, go ahead. I, I I I feel ready, but if you'd like to discuss other things, no, no, that was actually the last thing. So that is a perfect segue. I just wanted to make sure. So I'll do. We'll do a hard segue. So we're now jumping into the forecast. Oh, you're messing with my smooth segue, Chris. <laughs> I had that. Sorry, I, that no, was on its way. My segues have to be awkward and forced. Otherwise, I just don't don't do them. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So we're doing our, our segue now at this point into the forecast episode. I just wanted to note the time so that I can get the timestamp down. So we're 50 minutes into the episode. Let's talk about the forecast for for February. Uh, Austin, you were saying that the the Mars in Sagittarius provides a good jumping off point for that. Yeah, well, so Mars is going to be in Sagittarius for all of February, and I was thinking about it the other day. Um, you know, I did a little writing on it, and you know, I was thinking about uh, the various topics that you know, what does Mars do in Sagittarius? Um, and I realized that you know, it being Mars in Jupiter's domicile. Um, there's a certain there's a certain heretical glee to Mars in Sagittarius, and Jung Jung was also a very happy heretic. You know, he was a heretic. Um, uh, he was a heretic in the eyes of uh, the psychoanalytic establishment, and he loved the Gnostics, who were um, you know condemned voluminously as heretics. <laughs> and uh, it just got me thinking. I know I actually. I have a friend who has Mars in Sagittarius who wrote a book that has heresy in the title. And the more I looked for heresy in Mars in Sagittarius, the more I found it. And it made me want to redo the uh, the Warhammer heresy memes. I don't know. the um, Some of the, the younger, hipper kids out there in the audience might know what I'm talking about. Um, it's, just look up heresy memes. Um, you guys are looking at me blankly. Yeah, so. we are neither totally, y- young nor hip at this point. No, <laughs> sorry, Austin. No, but okay. you're just revealing our nerdiness for the public. That's all. So, or just not the right kind of nerdiness. It's a tabletop um, fantasy war game. So, uh, more, less nerdiness and more than not, not uh, the exact type of nerdiness that I was referencing. I'll have sure. to save my Dungeons and Dragons references as well, I suppose. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I like that the Mars and Sagittarius as the the happy heretic or the yeah that idea because Mars in Sagittarius is Mars bringing his significations and bringing the fight basically to Jupiter Jupiter being the domicile lord of of uh, Sagittarius and that's interesting because that's basically one of the main signatures this month is we're finally out of Mars going through Scorpio after. 
it seemed like forever. How long was that? It was like like two months, two and a half months? Yeah, it was. It was like from the 9th of December to late January. So it was. A, it would have felt like two months, basically. December, it was January. Yeah, it's um, slightly longer than normal because Mars is already slowing, slowing down, down in preparation for the end of June retrograde. And so usually it's like five weeks and change. Um, mm-hmm. This time was a little over six. And then when Mars moves into Capricorn in March, then it'll be a solid two months. And then we're and then after that, then we're in super slow town. But um, but yeah, so it's that's that's a background. It's not that this is an incredibly martial month, but that is where Mars will be literally the whole time. Um, and so, in addition to you know getting your happy heresy on um, Mars and Sagittarius, I, I, I was one of the things I was thinking is that it really reveals the connection between purpose and motivation and action Mm. you know with mars needing with mars basically needing jupiter for fuel in sagittarius you've got to have it's a good time to work on your why you're doing things and it will also of course show how without a why um you know we collapse in the face of hardship yes which brings me back to victor frankl's man's search for meaning work since we're talking about early 20th century stuff today, I guess. Um, have you guys read that book, Men's Search for Meaning? Yeah, I read that uh, 19 years ago. Yep. Yeah, way back. There's just a little bit there around the idea that if you have that idea of the, the Sag philosophy, if you know why something's happening or you can have a sense of the larger context of something, you can handle almost any of whatever that thing happens to be. So he was a, a, he was in the concentration camps and he was a psychologist. Well, he was a psychologist before he went in. So he had this different framework that he used to help understand his time and his experience there. And it, yeah, the, the, some of the people that were able to really handle or survive some of the horrific circumstances there were able to really tap into that larger conceptual framework of why or how, or, you know, the motivation as Austin speaking to here with Mars and Sag. So that if you can figure that out, then you've got more chance of being able to push through the hard stuff. And there's hard stuff even when you're following your passion. And I think that's a fallacy that sometimes people think, you know, because Mars and Sag could be a little bit collectively about what's your passion and are you living your passion and are you living your truth? And those things are all good to, to pursue, but don't do them thinking that it will be sunshine and roses all the time. A couple of other points, though, on the Mars and Sag piece. The last time we had Mars and Sag was in 2016 when we had the Mars retro Saturn combo. So this is a very different Mars and Sag cycle this time around. Um, So a little bit more maybe benign than the last time, because I think we've talked um, on the podcast before about that very difficult Mars Saturn doubleheader in Sag in 2016. It's also the last time for most of this year that we will have Mars not in a Saturn ruled sign, because once Mars goes into Cap and then we're into Aquarius and then we're into the retrograde and it's something like nine months of this year, Mars will be just in those two signs. Yeah. So there, there's definitely some things to be mindful of with Mars and Sag, but I also feel like if you if you don't love a Mars and a Saturn sign, then you want to make the most of this this vibe now. Yeah, I agree. And, um, and this is also the first time with Mars moving through Sag that Jupiter's in Scorpio, so that they're mm-hmm. they're actually exchanging signs at the same time, or the first time since Jupiter's gone into Scorpio that that's been the case. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yes. That can't hurt. Um, it'd be nice if they had an aspect between them, but, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't hurt. So quick, uh, just quick note, Kelly, I, 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 uh, asked your data bank to Victor Frankel. Oh and, yeah. And Sag Moon. Oh, Sag Moon. Of course. Oh my God. Of course. Of course. Because it's all about the Sag perspective. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Well, when that's funny because, um, another, uh, another writer who, uh, always emphasized, uh, the necessity of meaning and purpose and how, you know, we kind of fall apart without that was uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who oh. is also who is also a moon in Sage. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah. And that's the quote that I love. He who has a why can bear almost any how or something. Yeah. 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 So like, maybe that's the theme for this Mars in Sage cycle for our listeners is get your favorite philosophers or your favorite quote, like get those as motivation tools. Yeah, shore up your how and maybe remember to rem- or excuse me, shore up your why, you know, if you're that if the structure of that is a little um, you know, shaky. Uh and if you have a a good why but you keep forgetting about it, maybe integrate a way to remind yourself of why mm. you're doing what you're doing, you know, into your week. That's a great tip. Because one of the thoughts I had about February as a theme is it's a very fairly Jupiterian kind of vibe. We've got this Mars in Sag, and then in the latter part of the month, we will have, not that I want to necessarily skip ahead, just conceptually as we take the big picture look, in the latter part of the month, of course, we have the personal inner planets, Venus, Mercury, and the Sun going through, going into Pisces. Well, I would say it becomes Jupiterian. It becomes Jupiterian. That's a good, yes, it's like becoming I I think we really have to clear the um, Leo Aquarius eclipse tunnel before Mm -hmm. it's going to feel too Jupiterian. That is a good point because we do have a lot of Leo and Aquarius at the top of the month. I mean, and that's one of the issues that we ran into in doing the elections this month or that Lisa ran into was she said she really had a difficult time once you get to the second half of the month, all of the inner planets, the sun and Mercury and Venus move into Pisces. Uh, you know, which is fine in and of itself, but then they all start squaring Mars, which is going through Sagittarius, so that Mars is in a superior square over the Pisces planets, which all eventually perfect over the course of February and March, which just creates a difficult sort of setup for finding a good electional chart during that time, just because it creates some tension between the square from Mars and Sagittarius to the planets going through Pisces. I mean, how do you guys feel about that square in terms of balancing out on the one hand, what what should otherwise be a more positive thing with everything in Jupiter ruled signs and even Jupiter itself being in Scorpio trining all those Pisces planets, but then Mars, you know, creating some tension from Sagittarius at the same time. Yeah, it, it's a little bit of a fly in the ointment, but I I don't um it doesn't worry me over much. Um I, I think uh the the planets in Pisces and Sagittarius having the same ruler helps a lot. I also like all of the planets in Pisces being able to uh, see their ruler, Jupiter and Scorpio, by trine. I think that's really nice. Um, yeah, that's a I huge mean, mitigating factor. Yeah, I just – and Mars and Sag just isn't that – I mean, honestly, Mars and Sag is going to be – it might be a little loudmouthed at times and a little uh, inflammatory, but it's like honestly the least threatening Mars all year. Compared to Mars in Cap uh, or retrograde Mars in Aquarius or the Mars in Scorpio we just got done with, 
Um, again, that's like the least threatening Mars I see this year, except maybe the Pisces at the very end of the year. At the tail end. Look, I mean, the the Mars in Sag is definitely that overcoming square. I mean, I think I got a new appreciation of that when Saturn actually left Sag at the end of last year because you don't realize necessarily how heavy something is until it's gone. <laughs> right. Especially if you have a huge stellium in Pisces, perhaps, just hypothetically. Just conceptually speaking, possibly. <laughs> right. In terms of yeah. your historical studies and clients. That's right. All the like detailed objective research I've done on yes. Pisces stelliums. Right. But but the other side of it is a Pisces stellium needs a little bit of prodding to get its act together, like, you know, to be productive. So Technically, it's maybe like a, a potential negative or problem, but in the context of the specifics of this, I think that it can just be a little bit of like fuel just to get going. And as we said, with the mitigation from Jupiter, I think that I think the Jupiter trine all the planets is is maybe an override or a, a more of a special feature. I think for this month, yeah, I can I can see it being actually more of a more trouble um, picking a perfect electional moment. Then, yes. it, then, then it's going to provide trouble on a lived daily level. That's a great distinction. I'm, I'm trying to pull up some like Mars and Sagittarius natal charts to see to compare your your Mars and Sagittarius statements, Austin. And so far, the people I'm coming up with are like Elliot Smith. Oh, there's a good one. George Carlin. That's a that's oh, a nice, he's a happy heretic. Yeah, that's a good Mars and Sagittarius example. Uh, there it is. Mars at zero Sag retrograde. Um, who else? T. S. Eliot, Richard Nixon, uh, a few other Jeffrey Wolf Green. Interestingly, Kim Kardashian. Um, <laughs> Say no more, please. <laughs> yeah, and a few other. Oh, that's that's so funny. Actually, James James Dean is actually the. Oh, no, no. I was thinking of the other. I was thinking of the other one. Uh, never mind. So, uh, so we're talking a lot about Mars and Sagittarius, and that being one of the major signatures for this month, and that being one of the things that really sets this month apart from last month, as well as the next few coming up, where Mars will be going through Aquarius and Capricorn. But we should probably. I mean, the elephant in the room this month really is the eclipses, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and we actually have one that takes place like right before the month starts, but we should probably start and talk about that one a little bit since even though it happens like the day before February begins, it's still very much setting the tone for the first half of the month essentially at least, right? Absolutely. Well, it's the morning of the 31st and it's a, it's a total lunar eclipse in Leo. Yeah, and it, it, for our Australian listeners, it's actually on February 1st there. So it, it kind of straddles. Um, so I'm glad we're going to talk about this okay? because it's perfect. a, it's a total lunar eclipse. It is, I mean, I, I don't know if we've mentioned this earlier, but the lunar eclipses this year are much more dramatic and they're the total eclipses of the year. So this, uh, eclipse is definitely, you know, one of my highlights as we head into February for sure. And and what's the deal with it? There's some other like notable astronomical oh, thing, or is that is that real? Or are people it's just the like super falling moon for thing? It? Is it because there's two full moons in the month, or is it because it is actually quite close? I'm not sure. Well, yeah, they're saying it's a it's a go ahead. It's a blue moon and it's a super moon and it's like something else, maybe just an eclipse. Right? So the blue moon piece will just be because it's the second full moon in a month, which doesn't mean anything. No, right? We, you guys yeah, are historically very down on the blue moons. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it doesn't mean anything. It, 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 right. it, it's only significant if you're using the, the modern calendar. Like, it, it's arbitrary. It's not significant yeah. from a celestial phenomenon. Uh, it's uh, astronomically. If you have, when yeah. you have two full moons in the same sign, that's, that's like a, more significant. That, that's a that's a real blue moon. Yeah. Um. But the super moon thing is real. It just means it's you know yeah. it's, it's it's closer rather than farther. The moon gets a little closer, a little farther. The apogee um, or the perigee. And it, appe- it appears visibly bigger to the naked eye. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit closer. You know, there's a little wobble um back yep. and forth. Okay, I, I just wanted to clarify that because it's like sometimes these are actual legitimate astronomical things, and other times they're not. Like today. It, this was blowing my mind that that I saw a bunch of astrologers starting to share this fake article saying that Pluto had been officially reclassified by the American or by the International Astronomical Union to be a planet again. And like there was a I don't know, a handful of astrologers that were starting to share this, like this was a thing that actually happened. And it was actually on the NCGR's page, like the NCGR shared it, which freaked me out because then it was only a matter of time before like hundreds of astrologers were sharing it. But if you go to the article and actually read it, halfway through it links to its source for the American Astronomical Union, and then it takes you to a page that just says April Fools. So <laughs> I guess they got in early. Yeah, yeah, it's not even April, it's like February. So I don't know. This is something we gotta be careful about. And I think feel like as astrologers have to be proactive when there's some you know, sketchy astronomical thing that's being promoted as a big deal to really like get on that pretty early and shut it down as being not valid if or not legitimate if it's not. Um, because that's, you know, partially where the latest Zodiac controversy came from just a couple of years ago now was from just some random blog that was just making up something and, and pretending as if NASA had made a new discovery. And then that generated the whole controversy that came over the next month or two. Totally. Um, yeah, so the supermoon is the is when we have a new or a full moon at the same time the moon is in perigee, which is close. I just confirmed whether it was the perigee close or apogee furthest. So I guess it adds to the visual phenomenon because it is physically, relatively speaking, closer. Uh, so yeah, we could I, we could we can respect the, the supermoon for sure, but the blue moon I think will uh Sure. Except for the the astrological version of the blue moon, can we call that a blue moon if it happens like two lunations in the same sign, or do we need to come up with like another term in order to distinguish that from the fake blue moon? Um, I would give it its own term, or I just say it's two full moons or two new moons in the same sign, which is unusual. I, I feel like we need like a catchy phrase for That's that to true. come up with in order so for it to like catch on, because even the term supermoon. If I understand correctly, I'm under the impression that somebody attributed that name to the astrologer Richard Nolly. And like in some like astronomical books, this astrologer is actually credited with coming up with that name, even though it was only he only introduced it like two or three decades ago. So I think we need to maybe we could crowdsource this and see if anybody in the audience can come up with a catchy name for two lunations in the same zodiacal sign. I'll let you guys think about that. Yeah. All right. So clearly, this, our Saturn and Virgos are freaking out by being put on the spot, Chris. Right. Yeah. I don't want to put you guys on the spot. So, this lunation, this full moon lunar eclipse is taking place at, it looks like 1137 Leo. So, 11 degrees of Leo. This, the moon will be at 11 degrees of Leo conjunct the North Node at 14 Leo. And the sun will be at uh, 11 degrees of Aquarius conjunct Venus, which is at 16 degrees Aquarius. Yes. Yes. 
I don't know. I kind of like the North Node element of the moon. I mean, I know it's an eclipse, so I know the moon will be partially not visible for a period of time. Um, but the symbolism of like the the full moon energy coming up to the North Node, that idea of, I want to say the word spotlight, but I don't mean a literal light because it's an eclipse and the light is blocked. It's more like the internal awareness that might be described as like coming into the light or gaining clarity about something. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited for people to get a taste of something new or fresh or different around whatever house area this eclipse is triggering for them. But that's right. probably my typically positive spin and over to you, Austin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So one, uh, eclipses stir things up. They stir up the, they stir things, they stir up the deeps, um, and stuff comes out. Um, you get one of the sort of most general but accurate things we can say about eclipses is it stirs up the the unknown both inside you and outside your life and stuff just happens. Things things happen out of the blue or those things which were latent um, jump into being visible. Um, a lot of times, you know, one of the phenomenons I've seen is people always report, report – um, really intense, strange dreams around eclipses, even people who aren't big dreamers. Um, and you often have something which maybe you suspected would happen or a change you think you were maybe going to make. Suddenly it, 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 it comes in, um, how should we say, it, it comes into being fully formed with surprising rapidity. Um, there's, a, there's an emergence from darkness into light. Uh, we get to see what's in the shadow, right? Um, on an experiential level, you know, a full moon, a total lunar eclipse like this, um, that's a lot of, um, how should we say, it's a lot of lunar juice. Um, it's going, it's going to activate people, uh, emotionally. Um, there's going to be a lot of feelings. There will be many feels, especially with it, when it, with it being in Leo, there All will be the a feels. Yeah. There will be a tendency to act that out and to express that, which, uh, I will ask you to kindly restrain. Um, <laughs> no, but there's the, I, on a psychological level, I think there's a lot of stuff that's asking to be. A lot of people are going to encounter parts of themselves, parts of their soul, parts of their self with a capital S um, that they need to that need that is now time to integrate into how they consciously see themselves and um, present themselves to others. You know, Leo is. Very much a place where we see the ego structure, uh, the identity structure, and the way it's expressed. And in a sense, the North Node um, overfills that. It fills it beyond capacity, which is in some ways a challenge to make it bigger. So all that fits. Um, but you know, and I, 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 as I've been writing about it and thinking about it, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to come up. Both the wonderful qualities you have that you don't necessarily know how to fit into your personality and own as well as the you know kind of icky gross petty parts of yourself that you'd rather not identify with um i, I think that psychologically it's really asking you to to be to figure out how to be more of what you actually are consciously and you know, in general, an eclipse like that is just going to stir up whatever house it falls in, in your natal chart. You know, if, if it's in your fourth, look, you know, look at, look at, look at what, look at family for the next two weeks. If it's in your second, look at money. If it's in your ninth, 
look at your spiritual beliefs and practice. If it's in your first, look at your health and your state. Like there's a lot, there's a very strong, um, how should we say the, the level to which an eclipse, especially a total eclipse will impact the house that it takes place in, in your chart. Um, I think should not be underestimated. Mm. What do you think? Yeah. Kelly? Yeah, I, I think I agree completely. And I love the phrasing you used Austin around the stirring things up because this, even that sort of James Bond phrase of like shaken, not stirred, you know, this, this is really going to agitate things. And I do like the point that you made around because it's in Leo, it's very much about the self. It's about that, you know, the, the expression of one's ego. And are you doing that consciously or unconsciously? Are you doing it with awareness or are you doing it in a way that's maybe driven by some sort of unconscious thing like a fear? Um, yeah. But sorry, Chris, were you going to say something there too? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, in addition or to add to that in terms of the house placement, um, to to really see this as a continuation or a culmination for many people of things that started last summer around the time of the solar eclipse, which took place in Leo in August. Um, I think there's a lot of people where there were probably some events and circumstances that really started to germinate or, or that there was a foundation laid for back then that might have even been a little bit obscure or not clear that will probably come to culmination around the time of this lunar eclipse because you're going from like a, a super new moon, which is basically the solar eclipse in Leo last August, to a super full moon now basically taking place in Leo here in uh you know late January, early February. And therefore, you know, seeing it not as just like a one-time event, but sometimes more of a continuation of a sequence of events that leads all the way back to last summer. Well, and this is actually I think that's a great point, Chris. And this is actually the dead center of the Leo Aquarius eclipse series, because we get another full installment um, in Leo and Aquarius over this uh, over this third quarter. And then we have um, sort of um, uh, uh, we have a, a, a bidding goodbye eclipse in about a year. Um, and we had we had another one of these sort of halfway between signs and cycles eclipses that began last year. And so we're really this is like the this is like in the thick of the Leo Aquarius eclipse series. We've got, you know, there's plenty more to go, but a lot of the themes have been introduced. And like Chris said, I think that there'll be you, these things will start moving in a more in a direct in a more sensible direction or in a direction that's easier to ascertain whether they're internal or external and that you know, you should be able to figure out what the storyline is for these. Uh, at this, you know, uh, with this, uh, with the second full installment. Right. And and here's the chart for the eclipse. I can't believe it's been almost six months now since that eclipse, the great, you know, American eclipse across North America, which we all or so many of us watched happen live, and that we spent so much time talking about in the lead up to it. I mean, one of the interesting things about that was just the reminder that sometimes, you know, eclipses and new moons in general are often you know the closing of one cycle in terms of the relationship between the sun and the moon and the beginning of another but that sometimes that can be kind of muted or kind of low key in terms of you know new endings and new beginnings because typically a new beginning can sometimes be very subtle i mean sometimes it's not it doesn't always like start with a bang but sometimes it's something that starts very quietly and gradually and then eventually ramps up into something um more obvious or more overt 
uh, especially when you get to you know the other side of it six months later where we're about to have a full moon or lunar eclipse in the same place. Yeah, and so I, I just wanted to jump in here with pointing out that this is basically – uh, in terms of where people can see it, it's basically centered on the uh, the Pacific Rim of Fire. Um, you know, you'd be able to see it into sort of well into Eastern Asia and in Australia and in the the western the more western parts of the United States. But it's really it's really centered on the Ring of Fire. Okay, the Pacific Rim. Got it. All right. So, and that opens up the you know the first half of the month um what else in terms of early stuff happening at the very beginning of february are there any other like major things that take place that we should talk about uh, i have an electional chart that happens in the first week of the month so i could move into that unless there's anything else we should really focus on before we move on from the very very beginning of the month uh well there's mercury enters aquarius at the beginning of the month or actually, it might even be the very last moments. Yeah, it's the yeah, last. Yeah, the thirty first of, of Jan. Yeah, so Mercury's in Aquarius when the month begins, yeah. and we'll shift into Pisces later. Yes, and I think the 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 only big sign change, or not even necessarily a big one, but Venus moves into Pisces on the tenth of Feb. So, to to speak to what you're saying, Austin, like we come into February, Mars just having moved into Sag. And Mercury having just moved into Aquarius, which is a different tone to what we've had throughout January. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit sick of Mercury and Capricorn. Um, I'm ready. You're ready for the next the next bit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. got to get a new phone, so I'm happy about Mercury going into Aquarius. Yeah, I'm happy that Mars no longer going through Scorpio, even though it was nice having it applying to that conjunction with Jupiter for a while with reception, especially in some electional charts, and I'll miss that. Uh, some of the squares and other things that it was having were, were not that great. I liked it, but I got so much done. I, uh, almost trans- I almost completed my transformation into a human freight train. <laughs> it's funny, Austin, because I know you mentioned in our pre-show chat that you were exceptionally busy in that time. And I would have to say that I was – we were busy doing slightly different things, but the, that freight tra- train energy – and I, I met up with a um, astro buddy in Sydney, and she reminded me that the last time Mars and Jupiter were actually together in Scorpio was like in the early eighties. Really? Yeah, which I was surprised by, and I have to confess, I have taken her word for it. I haven't done the research myself, although it sounded reasonable. Uh, so, and, and anyway, just based on my personal experience, but yeah, I thought that that's you know we don't often think about something like Mars and Jupiter being in the same sign together, we might make an assumption this happens every 12 years, but Mars only covers half the zodiac in a 12-month period and Jupiter will only be in one sign. So actually, more often than not, Mars and Jupiter do not end up in the same sign at the same time. So yeah, so I just checked it. Your your friend is right. Yeah. Yeah. She, she would have written about it. She's. I don't want to name her, but she. I didn't think she would be wrong. Um, yeah, so the freight train. So that was good, but it's nice to have a shift now, I guess, with Mars going yes. into Sag. We've got to get our lives back, Austin, from our um, freight train workaholicism. But I like being a freight train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's just, it's funny. I was talking about this with another friend who's not an astrologer, but who also loves working. And we were like, we just have to keep that work-life balance going. Anyway, um, to sure. your electional, Chris, over to you. Yeah. Can you, I'm sure can you see this chart? I'm not sure if I'm sharing it correctly. Yeah, Feb 11th, just before like 1130 AM or something. Uh, no, it should be February 7th here. Let me try switching. That, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. I was a little curious why you put the moon on top of Saturn in its detriment. Yeah, why right. the chart ruler was combust the sun or something. I don't know. I mean, we'll see if you like this moon position any better. So the, the <laughs> issue, this is the electional chart. This is the one we're going to highlight. So we've got actually, I think, four or five electional charts we're going to highlight this month that Lisa Scheim found of lisascheim.com, lisascheimastrologer.com, not sure, one of the two. Uh, she was having some problems though, like I said, now that Mars is in uh, Sagittarius, once everything moves into into Pisces, it's a little bit difficult to find good electional charts because so many of the inner planets then are going to be applying to that square with Mars, which is, is at least certainly in day charts, something that you want to tend to avoid for electional charts. So the one that we wanted to highlight for this month actually takes place earlier in the month while most of those inner planets, the Sun and Mercury and Venus, are still in Aquarius. Where they're getting this superior square from Jupiter in Scorpio. So here's the chart. It's uh, February 7th, 2018, starting around 5 p.m., so just before sunset, basically, in whatever your location is. So in these electional charts, we set it for local time. So what you want to do is basically set the chart for this date around the same time and then try to adjust the chart so that. The ascendant is around 14 degrees of Leo in your location. And if you do that, then you should end up with somewhere around 5 p.m. in whatever city you're located in. So the chart has mid Leo rising, and the ruler of the ascendant is the sun, which is at 19 degrees of Aquarius in a day chart, and it's applying to a square with Jupiter within three degrees, which is at 21 degrees of Scorpio. So part of the thing we're going for in this chart is that the ruler of the ascendant is applying to a benefic. Um, it is a square, which is slightly difficult, but because it's a benefic, it's not that problematic. The fact that it's a day chart makes Jupiter the most positive planet chart in the chart according to the doctrine of sect, which is very helpful in this instance. Um, you've also got both of the benefics being angular, uh, Jupiter in the fourth whole sign house and Venus in the seventh house. In Aquarius at 26 degrees. Uh, the moon is in Scorpio, where it doesn't typically have a lot of dignity. However, it is separating from a very close conjunction with Jupiter and then applying from there to a square with Venus. So you've got almost kind of like a quasi enclosure of the moon between the two benefics, where the moon is separating from Jupiter and applying to a square with Venus. Um, Saturn is the ruler of those. Seventh house Aquarius planets, and it's actually in the sixth house, which is not a great position. Typically, that could be a condition known as counteraction, where you have a planet that's relatively well placed, like those seventh house Aquarius planets are, but they're ruled by a poorly placed malefic that's in the sixth or twelfth. That was historically or traditionally called a condition of, of maltreatment or affliction. However, Saturn is mitigated in several different ways. The most important one um, for my purposes is that I made sure that it's very closely trying the degree of the midheaven, which is at five degrees of Taurus in this chart, uh, trining Saturn at five degrees of Capricorn. Uh, Saturn is also in its own domicile, and it's also a day chart. 
So there's some major offsetting factors that are making Saturn uh, in much better condition than it would be otherwise, which is important since it's the planet that rules the sign that the ruler of the Ascendant is located in, which is the Sun. Um, other things about the chart, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, it's not uh, Mars is the planet that's more problematic in this day chart, but it's in the fifth house, it's, and it's not really afflicting anything yet like it would be later in the month when it starts overcoming all of the Pisces planets through a superior square. So this is the one that we wanted to highlight for February as the most auspicious electional chart that we could find. There's three or four other charts that we're going to go through on the Auspicious Elections podcast this month that Lisa and I are going to record tomorrow, but I will go ahead and save that for for that recording. So yeah, what do you guys think? Well, it's nicer than the other chart we were looking at. Yeah, that was not a great chart. I should pull that up again and see how it compares. I like. I mean, uh, I I do. I've I've had to do this in some of my own elections uh, with the Moon in Scorpio, where you wouldn't normally necessarily. I mean, there are some challenges, I guess, the Moon in Scorpio, but to be able to put it right next to Jupiter, I think, is a great thing. Yeah, definitely. If you're going to put the Moon in Scorpio, putting the Moon in Scorpio conjunct Jupiter and applying to Venus is going to be one of the mo- more positive manifestations of a Moon in Scorpio that you're going to find. Yeah, I think the only slightly better version of that will be the following month when Venus is in Pisces, and if if it's possible that um, the Moon can be applied, like moving between Venus and Jupiter with Venus in Pisces rather than Aquarius, but obviously that w- it doesn't exist in February of 2018. Um, but yeah, to have the Moon going between both benefics is great. Yeah, yeah that's, definitely. That's about all you. That's the most you can do with the Moon in Scorpio. Sure. Yeah. So, and and the last thing I meant to mention, I want to talk about this more on the Auspicious Elections podcast this month. But um, I was actually surprised. And I was kind of I found it kind of humorous. Well, not actually that humorous. Kind of annoying. But that um, in December, when I was getting this whole posters thing together, uh, Mercury w- was retrograde most of the month, and that in and of itself led to some delays as I was trying to actually get the posters and get them prepared to go on sale and. I got them printed up by this company, and the company shipped them to me, but then FedEx uh, lost them, and they claimed that they had delivered the posters to me and left them with my roommate, but I don't, of course, have a roommate. And so they ended up having to send me a second order of posters, and it was this whole like Mercury retrograde-type debacle. One of the funny things about that, though, is I actually ordered the round tubes um, right in the center of the, the retrograde, and and using an electional chart, I think that ended up emphasizing Mercury because I just knew that I had to order them that day in order to get everything on time. And I just sort of crossed my fingers and hoped that it would work out for the best. So that ended up being ironic then, of course, that the following month, the big issue with the posters would be them not being delivered or getting stuck in the mail because they were round tubes that were getting stuck in the postal system. So it brought up kind of an interesting issue in terms of both electional astrology and things like Mercury retrograde, which is sometimes you can initiate something potentially earlier on under a Mercury retrograde, and it can kind of stamp you know, that activity with that particular quality, which then sometimes doesn't always manifest exactly during the Mercury retrograde itself, but sometimes can have like a delayed fuse, which shows up later on during the development of whatever venture it is that you're trying to initiate at that time. Have you guys dealt with stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, that I, I think that's a big part of how electional works. 
I would also add that that Mercury retrograde had the distinction of beginning conjoined Saturn and then concluding afterwards with another conjunction to Saturn. And so that was a, that particular cycle had delays particularly baked into it. Yeah. And, and it's so funny because it's like, it was just, you know, it's a basic principle of astrology. It's not like I was surprised, but it's funny to get reminders or to have things like that reemphasized in different ways at different times constantly. And, and just to see a reminder of very basic principles like that. Like, yeah, if you start something under a certain alignment, it's going to carry the energies of that forward. And that's going to show up at various points during the lifetime of that venture, whatever it is, or however long it lasts. Yeah, there's a little bit of um, you know, when I think of electing electing things or, you know, the 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 birth of a human being creating their natal chart, it's a little bit of a like, um, when do you loose the arrow from the bow? Because, you know, it sort of has its own trajectory once you once you loose it. Right. There's right. a little bit more steering involved, obviously, in human affairs, but there is uh, there is an element of that. Sure, definitely. All right. Uh, so that brings us back to February then, since the electional chart was on the 7th, and uh, we talked about Venus going into Pisces uh, around the 10th and 11th. Mm-hmm. And then what's coming up after and, that? Or- and Kelly and I both love that. Yes, both we love agree. Venus and Pisces. Yeah, yeah. You're supposed to love Venus and Pisces. It's exalted. I mean, I like that. I just, I'm a little, I'm still a little thrown off by that Mars. I know you guys don't think that Mars is going to be too much of a problem, but it's it's definitely it's not as clean of like a Venus and Pisces as as we normally are used to experiencing. And there's just something about that that's a little problematic to me. It's better than squaring Saturn, which it did for the last three years. Yeah, I will definitely give you that. That's a good point. Um, okay, so and the so Venus square, have, the Venus square Mars for people listening at home will be an exact aspect on the twenty fifth of Feb. Okay, twenty fifth, so right at the end of the month, and that's yeah. the first planet basically that catches up to Mars eventually. Um, does Mercury get there first? No. No. When does, oh, Mercury's at the end of the month, the twenty eighth. Oh yeah. Okay. Mercury does a double header with Mars and Pluto on the twenty eighth. Um, but okay. So we're back around the 10th. The only aspect I have around the middle, that's su- the sun will square Jupiter on the 10th as well. And then um, we're into, uh, yeah. yeah. Did you, did you want to, anything to add there, Austin? No, I mean, I, the way that I'm looking at the month, it's sort of like, yeah, Venus and Pisces is a nice little change. Like there's a nice little, it's a little, it's more soothing than Venus and Aquarius, um, you know, kind of oils up the machines a little bit, reduces friction. Um, but really, I'm just kind of waiting for the um, the partial solar eclipse to close out and balance the the pair of eclipses. Um, and I, th- I think those are going the the eclipse dynamics are going to kind of dominate what's happening uh, until we can get you know a couple days past that solar. Mm. All right, so you're talking about this solar eclipse that takes place at 27 degrees of Aquarius on the 15th of February. Yeah, that's the one. Right in the middle of the month. I was uh, I was disappointed that it wasn't going to be a Valentine's eclipse. I thought that would be kind of <laughs> right. <laughs> so close. It's very close. Well, the moon well, is on the south node on the 14th. You get you so. guys know that um, Valentine's Day uh, enrages me. 
not because what a I, surprise, Austin. No, it's not because I'm. <laughs> I'm. It's not because I'm against romantic or erotic love. No, uh, I am uh, in romantic and erotic love with my partner's man, yeah. Kate. But here's the thing: um, if we're talking about scheduling holidays, there should be some astrology to that. Correct. I'll, Right. And yeah. so even something like Thanksgiving, it's like, well, it always occurs on a Thursday, which is Jupiter's day when the sun's in Sagittarius, a Jupiter rules sign, and we're supposed to give thanks. Makes sense. Makes sense. Eat yourselves crazy also makes sense. Right. And, you know, and uh, this, uh, you know, Christmas makes sense as sort of a, you know, Yule solstice thing. However, Valentine's Day, the only thing we're guaranteed to get is the sun in late Aquarius. Yeah. And, Actually, one of my best friends has the sun in late Aquarius. It's not a romantic position. Uh, he's a Libra rising, so he's relatively smooth. But that, <laughs> but the sun in Aquarius, the sun in late Aquarius, that's not like ooh, that's you know, that's that's the romance election. Like how I, I actually, uh, Kate and I did this one year, and I proposed this for everyone: uh, reschedule Valentine's Day for the day that the sun hits Venus's degree of exaltation at the end of Pisces. Yes, try that. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, and, and rant. <laughs> That's no, a good make, idea. You make a good point, Austin, because there is no connection. What does Aquarius? I mean, Aquarius is a great sign with some fine points, but you wouldn't put it in anything to do with, you know, sweetness or romance or even. Right. right. If, if, if you've got the entire year to choose from, right? Yeah. So it's not a Valentine's eclipse, unfortunately. It is uh, the day after Valentine's Day. It is the 15th of February. And this one's a lot more mellow than the big lunar that um, sort of uh, preempts the month. It's a partial solar eclipse in Aquarius. It's a um, little slower. It's off the uh, it's off the south node rather than the north node. <laughs> the north <laughs> node. The north nerd. Uh, it's the south nerd. Um, and, <laughs> and but it, but it is a ways off the South Nerd. Um, <laughs> like I think it's thirteen degrees separated or something. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not as intense. Um, and you know the South Node is about letting go of things. Um, and you know I think it's interesting is that we have this sort of, you know, relatively mellow, but kind of releasing, letting go of some stuff eclipse. And it's um, just a day and a half before Mercury makes a perfect superior conjunction to the sun, right? Which is also in the Mercury superior conjunction to the sun is very much a point of mental clarification, and, you know, if we're talking about Aquarius, we, we, you know, we should be talking about, you know, what's up there in the winds. We should be talking about the mm. mental layer of things. And so I don't know. I, I think a lot of people might might experience this as a uh, an insider series of insights that lets them kind of let go of some things. And I think it's going to serve to depressurize some of the sort of emotional thickness and intensity that the full moon, the 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 total lunar eclipse in Leo um, sort of slathers over the first half of the month. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it oh. does look, because it's also a lot more easygoing with that square with Jupiter being one of the only thing that's really tightly sort of tied into that in terms of hard aspects is Jupiter's at 22 degrees of Scorpio and it's squaring the sun and moon conjunction at 27 Aquarius. 
there is a sextile from Uranus at 25 Aries, which is sextiling, sending a sextile ray to 25 Aquarius, but that's you know not a problem. So yeah, I mean it is much more easygoing compared to the lunar eclipse that precedes it two month two weeks earlier. Yeah, um, and uh, if we're talking about insight and uh, what occurs on on a mental level, you know Uranus is good for insight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there are things it's not good for, but but yeah, I don't know. Just looking at it and talking with you guys about it now, it's sort of like the 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 lunar feels really um, uh, sensitive and egoic and personal, and it's also just a bigger eclipse. Um, whereas the 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 excuse me the, uh, the the partial solar feels much more mental and sort of detached and not so you know oh my god all the feels you know it's a there's a clarif there are a couple different um, facets of it that suggest a clarifying and releasing rather than an overfilling the cup. That's a really nice distinction that the the clarification i think the the tendency with that full moon in leo one of the potential problems that i can see with that is the leo eclipse is just the being overrun by emotion or passion or primal kind of influences which is the opposite of what this aquarius eclipse is which is just much more cool calm collected or at least logical and it's almost one of the little anomaly not anomaly that's not the right word but the it's a new moon eclipse, but it's on the south node. So the the nodal influence about that need to release will override the normal kind of starting new energy, I think. Or it's sort of a weird blend that we've got to have some of that endings and releasing and that clearing well, out. Well, as a new moon, you can begin a lunar cycle or half of a lunar cycle that has release and cleaning out as a theme. Yes, absolutely. Like you could even set it as an intention for two weeks to kind of clear some of the dregs um, from the last little while and then kind of get set for the next few months. Yeah. And so, you know, Kelly, you and uh, we were all talking about this before we started recording. Once we get past this eclipse, um, it's not perfect, but really the next month, sort of mid um, February to mid March is um, pretty mellow as far as this year's astrology goes. Um, you know, it's almost like a little bit of a vacation or a little bit of a calm before the uh, before whatever weather comes afterwards. <laughs> whatever comes next. <laughs> right, before everything gets busy with like the Mars retrograde or getting ready to go retrograde, Uranus going into Aquarius or, go, or going into Taurus. Uh, Venus going retrograde eventually, and and everything else that's going to happen later this year. Yeah, because once we get in towards the equinox, like the yeah, you know, second half March. of March, we've got Mars is in Capricorn with Saturn, which is tough. It, it that could be good tough, but that's not like take a little time off, right? No. Um, and then we've got a Mercury retrograde in Aries that starts up just after that, and it's, you know it's going to be a somewhat chaotic uh, equinox and. And then by, you know, by the time we're done with that, it's Uranus and Taurus and, oh, Mars is deep in its shadow, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I like this, this, this second half of February through first half of March thing. It's a nice little piece of territory. Yeah. I mean, even just visually, if you look at the Planet Watcher calendar for this month, which I'll make February, like the cover image for this episode, uh, you know, there's hardly anything on it. It's like the one month this year where there's only what, like three or four things that I note, which are just 
the eclipse happening on the 15th and then the three planets ingressing into Pisces and that's pretty much it whereas every almost every other month has multiple as at least like five to ten different things going on yeah so in some ways it's like just if it feels a little pausey or there's just a couple of things going on use February to kind of get centered and and deal with that because there will be much more happening at other points in the year yeah and you know if you had some some New Year's ideas New Year's resolution ideas and you kind of already got off track you know it's maybe a time to put the put that freight train back on the track so that you know by the time things get exciting again you know you'll be um you'll be on that track you'll have some momentum in the right direction definitely uh yeah and the calm the calm before the storm so to speak of the rest of 2018 <laughs> all right yeah. Well, I think that's a good uh, note then to wind down on since we've pretty much covered all of the major things for for February. Um, I did mention I meant to mention at the top of this episode because we got a lot of comments of people asking me what software I'm using when I did the yearly forecast last month. And so the software I'm using for the animate chart feature is called SolarFire. Uh, you can actually get a discount on SolarFire if you use the promo code that they created for us, which is AP15, when you purchase the software from the company that makes it, which I think is called Astrolabe. So Astrolabe Software, which are based in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. All right. Well, um, I think that's it then for this episode. Do you guys have any parting words before we adjourn for, for the month? Hmm. I don't think so. No, I feel like I think everyone's got the vibe, which is good. Hoping. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good. This is a nice change of pace from like the frenetic, like we have to cover everything that's going to happen in the next 12 months of last month. And then Austin, you and me and Patrick and our, our Saturn and Capricorn, like attempt to give an overview of the entire history of like Saturn and Capricorn and all previous transits of that planet. And then everything that's going to happen in the next two or three years, uh, this is a much more low key episode than those have been. So I appreciate that. It may not be as dynamic or as like exciting as those were, but yeah, it's good to be back to doing these monthly forecasts with both of you again. And I look forward to meeting up with you again next month to look at, at March. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fantastic. All right. Well, uh, so I guess then we'll call it quits. Uh, Austin, where can people find out more information about your work? At my website, which is austincopic.com, A-U-S-T-I-N-C-O-P-P-O-C-K. Brilliant. And Kelly, what about you? Kelly'sAstrology.com, so Kelly'sAstrology.com. Awesome. And you can find out more information about the podcast at theastrologypodcast.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, then please be sure to go and give it a give the show a good rating since that'll help other people to find it in the future and we'll appreciate it. So that's it for this episode. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>